Oh, kakayaka. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And as you turn there, right, some of you guys are, or your children, are wasted on some candy. Can I get a witness out there, right? We got some diabetes going on today. Some of them probably did not sleep very early because of all the sugar. We thank God that the struggle yesterday had to do with something that could help us today and just fall asleep. Go to sleep, little ones, right? Uh, I want to share with you guys today that I am actually, one of my favorite holidays, if it's a holiday, I guess, of the season in the year is Halloween. And it's, it's, it's one of my favorites because I know historically in the church, something significantly took place 1,500, I mean 500 years ago with the Protestant Reformation. You may not know at the time, around this time, many of those who could read the scriptures could only read it if they were a priest or if they were a monk. The evangelical so-to-so Christians of this time was considered the Catholic Church. And over the years and centuries, the Catholic Church has actually went away from the scriptures and they added traditional things to the scriptures that the scriptures does not talk about. And because at the time in Germany, only the Bible was written only in Latin, Latin was not the normal language in Germany or in France or in Spain. They had their native language. And only those who are scholars and studied the word, who went to Bible college or seminary, right, could understand the Latin language or the original language, the Greek, the Hebrew, and the Aramaic, right? So, these people would follow whatever the Catholic Church did. So, a couple things that the Catholic Church did. They believed that baby baptism saves and secures the baby. We don't believe that today, right? We believe that salvation does not even come from baptism. Salvation does not come from a church. Salvation comes from Christ. Amen? Through grace alone, through faith alone. This is what they practice. In addition, they practice the mummification of their priests, right? They would mummify dead priests, put them in a shrine, right? And they would pray to these dead priests. I've seen it myself in Naples, Italy. So also, they also did things like money. They made people pay their way into heaven, and if they gave m enough money, they would be able to go to a place called purgatory and eventually to heaven. And the Bible doesn't teach this. The Bible does not teach works-based salvation that you have to do this in order to be in right relationship with God. In fact, that has been themed to be religion, a set of rules and regulation that man has to do to be in right fellowship with God. But that is not what the Scriptures thought. And so a man by the name of Martin Luther saw the error in the Catholic Church. He has this thesis of 95 issues with the doctrines that were practiced in the Catholic Church. He nailed it on the main monastery door in Wittenberg, Germany. At this case, if anybody came against the church, because the church was the highest authority of that time, you would have been murdered. What, what God saves, God preserves. Let me say that again. What God saves, God preserves. And God preserves His Word. 
We can discount it. People can misprove it. and People can deny it. But God preserves his word. I think Martin Luther expresses a great deal of gratitude to the text of Scripture. In fact, as we was walking through our Ohana groups, through our daily devotions to the Gospel of Luke, through our Bible app, we came to chapter 11 this week. And chapter 11, verse 28, like really comforted my heart when it came to people like Martin Luther, Luther and those who have stood in the face of danger and persecution when it came to standing for the Word of God. Look at what Luke said. And this is the words of Jesus in rebuttaling against a woman who told Jesus, blessed are the women in which you drank from. And, we, and Jesus corrected her and said, not blessed her, but blessed this person. Look at verse 11. It's up on the screen. Uh, chapter 11, verse 28 of Luke. It said, blessed rather are those who hear the what? Word of God and what? Keep it. These are marks of a true believer. One who hears the word, right? The true word of God. And one who keeps it. Now listen to me. This is not a condition. This is not a condition based on man's effort that if I do this, if I hear the word, if I read the word, if I keep it. No, this is not a condition. This is the evidence of God's grace and mercy. Did you guys just hear me this morning? This is not basing what you bring to the table. This is the evidence of God. Meaning that if it's truly of God, those who hear wouldn't be here because of the man. Those who hear would be here because of God. Those who keep it is not going to keep it because of themselves. Those who keep it is because of, help me out, God. What God begins in the believer, he will impact. He will complete to the very end. And the word that stands out to me is actually the first word in this verse. The word blessed. It's the Greek word makarios. It means to be happy, right? We get this from the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed, right? It's a promise word. It's not a, if you do this, then maybe you'll be blessed. No, it's the evidence of God saying, those who hear and those who keep the word of God is not going to hear and keep based on their efforts or their, their competency, but they will hear it and they will keep it because they are blessed. And the only one who can be blessed is those who have been blessed by God himself. Hallelujah. That's, the, that's what I love about the doctrines of the faith. The scriptures doesn't teach man do this. The scripture is that man cannot do nothing in and of himself because man is wicked. Man is sinful. Man is flawed. But oh boy, there's a good God man who came to this earth, who gave his life a ransom for you and for me, for your children, for the generations to come. So that in his name we would be blessed forever. That's the gospel. That's the gospel we preach. We don't preach a puny gospel that it just plants seeds. No, this bugger blossoms. This bugger blows up. This bugger goes to the ends of the earth. Why? Because what God does, he finishes. May that encourage you today. May that inspire you today. I don't know what you're going through, but I know if you're like me, you get some junk in your life. Hallelujah. And God has preserved us. Amen, saints. 
God has preserved us in a time of uncertainty, a time of global pandemic, a time of divisive politics, a time of divisive theology and doctrine. God has preserved his people. Why? Because bless means to be happy. Not happy only when things are going right, but happy God, I have some struggles in my marriage. Oh, God, I got some struggles in my community. Oh, God, I got more struggles in my church. Can I get a witness out there, right? God, I got struggles, but God, I'm blessed. I'm a Karyos. I'm pull my kai. I hold my kai. God, I am blessed because, God, you bless us. The evidence of true Christianity is not what I bring to the table outside of my sin nature. The evidence of Christianity is God came to save those who look just like him. Why? We are image bearers of the great king of kings. And so, so we're walking faithfully to the verse of to the gospel of Mark verse by verse. This is called an expository approach to the scriptures. We're going through a series entitled The Struggle is Real. Living a Christian life in a fallen world. And last week we looked at the greatest commandment, also known as the Shema prayer. That we shall love the Lord our God. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. Spouses, guess who's your neighbor? Your spouse. So love that bugger all. <laughs> you know, love them. You just scrap coming inside the church. Love them, all right? There is no other commandment greater than these. The struggle in this text, listen to me, that we seen last week is obvious, obviously loving God and loving others. But ultimately, our love is rooted in the one who is love. You know, love is a choice, right? Love is a gift. Let me tell you this. Love is a person. His name is Jesus. And today we, we will look continually at Jesus. What does it mean to follow Christ? So if you're at Mark chapter 12, will you stand up in the reading of God's perfect word? We like to stand in God's word as a sign of worship, as a sign of reverence, as a sign of respect, as honor. We see this in Nehemiah chapter 8 as we went over this past summer. And when we get to a few verses, right in verse 37 of chapter 12. We'll start at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple... He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the who? Holy Spirit declared. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng or crowd Heard him gladly. God, we come to you. And God, we'd ask you that you would teach us what it means to understand your scriptures in the context that it was written in, with the, uh, with the author's penship, and with the authority and power that it came from. You, God. Holy Spirit of God, would you make clarity in this text today? Lord, we love you, and we know you're going to speak. We know you're going to speak. May we be attentive to hearing from you by faith in Jesus' name. And we say, 
Amen. You may be seated. The title of my text in accordance with our series is called Do You Know the Christ? In the question format, I want you to think about that. Do you know the Christ? This would be a struggle for us in today's biblical times, right? The Christ of Scripture. Do you know Jesus, the Christ of Scripture? The word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. For the Jews, this, this is who they waited on while this is being spoken about in this text. The first century Christians, right, or the first century Jews before the Christians were, are waiting for the Christ. Today, Orthodox Jews are still waiting for the Christ to come. In fact, they get this understanding and what we call prophecy from a book written 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah. You know this passage, we've preached and exhausted this passage in the last seven years of our church. It says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor. Say it with me. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and of peace there are, there will be no end. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right? This is what they waited on. So interpretation could be differ based on background, based on education, based on social status. And before we get to this broken down of what they saw in a Christ, I want us to exegete the verses that we see today. I want us to see three important realities, then I want us to respond to these realities in communion together. Right? The first reality is we see the setting. In verse 35, it says, and, Je and as Jesus taught in the temple. There are two obvious realities in this small little verse right now. Number one, we see that Jesus is in the temple. And number two, we see that Jesus is teaching in the temple. The temple is a very important place throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's an important place throughout the scriptures. The Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the gathering place where Jews worship God. This was the temple. Solomon built in 1 Kings and also 2 Chronicles. It was also the temple that the Babylonians came and destroyed, as we see in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. This would be also the temple that will be rebuilt 70 years after the exile of Israel when the, the Babylonian Persian king will let them come back in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. They will rebuild this temple. It was said that God himself lived in this temple. There were three courts surrounding this temple. There was the outer court, there was the inside court, and there was an inner, inner court that was called the Holies of Holies. In the Holies of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God resided. Once a year, a high priest would come into the Holies of Holies. They would have a rope wrapped around his waist so that they can, and bells on it to make sure that he was okay. And if that high priest had any sin in his heart, we know that he, that high priest would die where he stayed. That's how serious the temple worship was. I wonder if we've forsaken that sort of devotion 
and commitment. Right? The temple was a big deal. Such a big deal that Jesus made it a priority to be there almost every day and teach there. You must remember that the main reason Jesus went to the temple was to preach, was to teach, I would say specifically on the kingdom of God. But we see all the way in chapter 11 to now, right, we see specific topics on what Jesus was teaching on. Specifically, Jesus taught on the authority of Christ. He taught about the crucifixion of Christ to the parable of the tenants. He talked about the taxes and government and even giving to the Lord and generosity. He talked about the resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Israel. He also talked about the Great Commission, the Shema prayer that we looked about last week. We see Jesus in this rhythm of his life, teaching, preaching, devotion to articulating the verbal message of God himself. Right? This, this setting leads us to our second reality, the situation. Look on in verse 35. Here's the situation. Jesus has already dealt with the priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and now he's honing in on the scribes, the religious prose and theological prose of the times, the one who wrote scripture and literature and documents, the one who understood the law of Moses inside out. It's very important to know that at this point, Jesus is now taking over these questions. You see, from chapter 11 to right now at the end of chapter 12, it was the religious rulers, right, who was controlling the conversation, asking Jesus all these questions. But Jesus has answered them very thoroughly. People are amazed. Therefore, Jesus does what we should be reminded about. He takes over the conversation, but he takes over the conversation while letting them speak their mind. Sometimes we give too much wisdom too early. But God allows people to realize how foolish they are by them just talking and yapping. Now, I don't speak from a platform of perfection in this area. I am one of those who love to talk. This is why I coach football, so I can talk, right? I want you to see this very clear. In verse 34, it says that no one dared to ask Jesus anything. Why? Because he answered rightfully, righteously. And Jesus could take this opportunity. Look, this is a great application for all of us in this room. You ready? Don't give up on teaching the word of God. I can promise you this from experience that when we have family devotions every morning at 6 o'clock, 6-ish, if I could say, it's not always warm, fuzzy feelings. Can I get a witness there, right? Sometimes one of the brothers may punch another brother in the face. Sometimes one of the brothers may fart in mid-sentence while daddy is on a roll, mom is on a roll in the text. And we get angry and we get, we get all hanoi and hakaka with each other, right? Don't give up. Preach the gospel in season, out of season. Not just when you get football season or not football season or whatever season you're going through. Preach the gospel. Don't give up. Don't waver. God's word always prevails. And so Jesus, he uses directive question regarding the scribes. Jesus shows how he identifies and addresses false teachers. Guys, I want you to hear very clear. This is not talked about, at least in, I, I, I've seen almost every preacher preach on, in these islands. This right here is usually not practiced in the community, in the church. Addressing 
false teachers. This is a normal rhythm of the New Testament. Jesus, Peter, Paul, Jude, they all confront false teachers. It was a normal rhythm. But because we live in a seeker-sensitive culture and context, we don't want to talk bad about people. But Jesus did it himself. And this is not bad just to make them look like fools. We want them to know the truth. I mean, my hope is that those who preach false doctrine will know the truth too, right? They would see the truth, and the truth shall, just like God, set us free. And so to understand this very question that Jesus is asking the scribes, we've got to go to the account of Matthew. Matthew actually picks up more information on what's happening in this exact story. Look at Matthew 22. It's on the screen. Now, while the fire Pharisees, right, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees in this Question, or Matthew uses Pharisees instead of scribes. But nevertheless, here's the political group. He says, now when while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Who is, whose son is he? The Pharisees answered, said, the son of who? David. These Pharisees believe in a Christ to come, just like all of us, but it's a different Christ. The Christ they're thinking of is a literal son of David. A blood son of David. Now, did Jesus come down the genealogy of David as we know through Matthew 1? Absolutely. But Jesus was not birthed through his adopted earthly father. Who was Jesus birthed through? The Holy Spirit. I want you to hear this, right? I want you to gain in on top of this understanding, right? Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Joseph came from the genealogy of King David, but it was the Holy Spirit of God who birthed Jesus. And as you see this, one who would, they would notice that this Christ to come, right, would be a warrior like David. That this warrior that would come, the Christ would have a sword. He would lead a physical army, army to rescue the nation of Israel from the oppression of Rome. This is what the Jews are thinking. When they were thinking about Isaiah chapter 9, that, that a child is born and he's coming, the government will be on his shoulders. They're thinking that there will be an Alexander the great Jesus that will come in this time and rescue all of Israel from Rome. This is not what the prophecy meant. This is not what the prophecy meant. Let, let's, let's make it clear. They're thinking of this Jesus or this Christ to be a man that would say, we're going to, like America, we're going to make America great again. That we're going to make the nation of Israel great again. That is not the text. The text is pointing us completely to a humble servant. Something that goes beyond physical means but the spiritual nature of the Messiah. And I think this makes sense that Israel would believe this context. Believe this about what a Christ would look like. And I think we would be the same way too. This is no different from the sovereignty movement in the Hawaiian culture. Well, we're looking for us to be redeemed as a sovereign nation. It's the same thing that we're feeling and we're experiencing. And so we see this setting, we see this situation, and we get to our final point. The reality is we see the scriptures. Look at verse 36 and 37. Jesus questions these theological pros with their own spiritual discipline. This is their spiritual discipline, everybody. The word of God. The scriptures. In fact, Jesus quotes Psalms 110 verse 1 from King David himself to challenge the question. It's right here in the Gospel of Mark. Look at verse 36. He said, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This word Lord is literally the word kyrios. It is used, or chorios, it is used over 700 times in the New Testament. Listen to me. If it's used one time, it's important. If it's used 700 times, how much more times is it important? 700 more times. That's the reality. Verse 37 says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is it that he is David's son? Look at this. Jesus makes it clear. David himself says that Christ is not his son. David himself, the same guy that the Pharisees and the scribes said that the Christ would come from. David himself says, I'm not the father, but I know who is. And so I want you to see this broken down prophecy or, or psalms that the psalter says to us in this text. Number one, right? we see David describes the relationship of the Trinity. First, he uses the term Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to make much of Christ. We see that in John 14. We see that in John 16, that the Holy Spirit will remind us about Christ. And the Holy Spirit will glorify Christ in these verses. We also see the Father and the Son relationship dynamic in this Psalms. The word that is used is the word Lord and Lord. One Lord represents the Father. The other Lord represents the Son. This is not practicing modalism where there are three different Lords. It's practicing what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, Godhead. That they're one God, three personalities, three descriptives, right, in one. David announces this. Secondly, and finally, David describes the wrath of God. Look at the text. He said, you're going to sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. Why right hand? Well, in the Bible, the right hand is the strong side. The right hand is always where the strong happens. Now, if you're left-handed, don't worry. God still loves you, all right? But the right hand is the strong side. This is where Jesus is going to sit, right? This is a promise that Jesus will remain on the right side of the Father until he returns to judge all of humanity. Well, let's look at this. Isaiah 66 says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is what? My footstool. God is sovereign over everything. Psalms 11, verse 4 to 7 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eye sees, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the what? Wicked. And the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Are you hearing what's going on, guys? We love to talk about a loving God, right? But this generation has forgot that our God is a just God. He loves and he demonstrates his love also through his wrath, his judgment. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is what? Righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Right, this, this verse was written around a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene in human flesh. This tells us that our God, listen to me, this tells us that our God is a patient God, everybody. He's a merciful God. He's a patient God. He, he, he allows us to go through what we need to go through. He causes it. But ultimately, He calls us through the Scriptures. 
as we just read, to repent, to trust in Him. So where do we go from here? Like, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you know the Christ? Do you know the Christ from the Scriptures? Not the one made up in television circles with the televangelists that wants your money. That wants all, not the, do you know the Jesus of the Bible? Not the popular famous pastors who are living off of your inheritance. Do you know the scriptures to talk about Christ? Or are you just like these Pharisees, religious rulers, wanting your own Christ? The preacher who's gone to be with the Lord, S.M. Lockridge, says this. The Bible says Christ is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of king. And he is the Lord of lords. Do you know this Christ? I wonder if you do. Christ is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. His enduring love is strong. He's entirely sincere. He's internally steadfast. He's immortally grace, graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know this Christ? Christ is the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of the world. He is God's son. Can I get a witness there, right? He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's the unparalleled. He's the unprecedented. He is the loftless idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the foundational of doctrine of theology. He is the only one qualified to be all-sufficient in his nature. Do you know this Christ? I wonder if you do. This Christ supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the template and the tried. He's sympathetic for those he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He sets them free. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He regards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know this Christ? Do you know this Jesus of Scripture? Christ is the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. And He is the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know this Jesus? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His word is enough. His word is enough. His word is sufficient. His scriptures are all alone sufficient enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And help me out, his burden is light. I wonder if you know him today. I wonder if you know this Christ. Christ is in the indescribable. He's the incomprehensible. He's the invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him, saints of God. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave could not hold him. Do you know that, Jesus, today? Do you know that, Christ? If you do, then the only way we should respond is this way. You ready? 
with thankfulness, with being grateful. God, I was the undeserved. God, I'm the problem. Not the sister brother next to me. I'm the problem. But God, you are merciful. God, you are grace. When I say, do you know the Christ? The Bible is clear who he is. Shout his name. One, two, three. Jesus. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the kinsman redeemer. He's the one that supplies all my needs. When I don't have bread, when I don't have eggs, when I don't have money, when I don't have it, God, Jesus has it all. He alone is enough. When I am broken, when I am weary, when I don't understand my president, when I don't understand my governor, when I don't understand the powers that be, I know who holds the power. I know who holds my life. I know who holds everything into all the existence. It is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Don't trip. Don't, don't get all caught up in your day-to-day -day life. Let me tell you why. Because I, he got the whole world in his hands. He got you. He got your child. He got my boss. He got your boss. Hallelujah. He got your boss's boss. Hallelujah. He got your spouse. He got your children. He got you in his hand. And for those who belong to Jesus, all we can say together is thank you, God, that you have given me your son. I'm undeserving. I don't deserve him. And it's at that moment when you finally realize that you're not all that that you think you're that. That God in his sovereign grace will humble you. And that your humbleness, I don't care if you come from Hilo. I don't care if you come from Wainai. I don't care if you come from L.A. I don't know wherever tough community you come from. I serve a God that will break any man. Myself included. Can we celebrate that God breaks man? God don't need proudful men. God don't need proudful men. God don't need, God need humble men, humble women, humble children. You know where it starts? You, your heart. Only God can minister to hearts when baby's going off this morning. Hallelujah. Only God can speak to your heart. Nothing I do can convince you otherwise. Only God can do. How does he do it? Just like Martin Luther, just like John Calvin, just like Charles Spurgeon, just like the Judsons, just like, just like all of these people. They stuck to the scriptures. They stuck to the word of God. The word of God, why? Because this word of God is not just lyrics on a page, but it is a person. This written word reveals the living word, the true Christ, the Messiah. His name, y'all, is Jesus. Do you know him today? No matter what. Yeah, we won't have stumbling blocks. Whether that's directly from you or other people, we'll always have that. Why? Because we live in an imperfect world. But thank be to God that a perfect God-man is coming back to redeem those he has rescued. So how should we respond? Just like those who were present. Look at what Mark's account was in the ending of our verses today. And the great crowd, and the great crowd, not small crowd, great, big, huge, humongous. And the great crowd heard Jesus gladly. I want you to look at the word heard. 
This is why you need to understand. Everybody needs to be scholars in this room. You need to study your word. Don't just trust me. Look at the word. Go to the original language. The word heard is significant in the Greek language. It's used in the same sense as King Herod's response to what he heard of the ministry of John the Baptist. Let me remind you, we preached about this last year around this time. Mark chapter 6. It says, for Herod feared John. Let me go slower. Herod, the king, feared John, knowing that he was a what? Righteous and what? Holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard, listen to that word, John, he was greatly, what is that word? Perplexed, attention. Some would call it fearful. And yet, he heard him, what? Gladly. Go back to Mark chapter 12, verse 37. In that understanding, that context. And the great crowd heard Jesus, what? Gladly. This word heard derives from this posture of fear. It's a fear that, God, you're going to damn me. You're going to send me straight to hell. But what changes the game is that word can shift with understanding the true Christ. How do we know? Because the word that continues on is the word gladly. May we all in this world, in this room, fear God. And may we be like the, the, the church in Galatia where Paul confronts them and says, are you looking for the approval of man or are you looking for the approval of God? May we be all those in this room who say, God, I'm fearful of my salvation. I'm fearful of eternity. Therefore, God, I trust in you gladly that you will rescue me. You will save me. So this is how we should react. This is how we should respond to our text today. Number one, hear God's word. Number two, fear God's word. Number three, embrace God's word. Let me see this. Those who honestly, truly fear God will not run away from God because God who lives in you will draw you closer to him. And the way God draws us closer to him is not just through this mystic feeling of, oh, I feel better about my day. No, God draws you. This is how you can tell whether you truly know God. God draws you to his scriptures. I'm not saying you get it perfect all the time. Hey, there's days, bro. I don't like spending time with God, but I know by God's wooing power, if I'm not in God's word, right, I'll be like the world. Hear God's word. Fear God's word. Embrace God's word. And may we be like Luke, as we learned this week. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God.